0: This is Jude Knoll, and you're listening to the Norse Podcast, a production for NKU by NKU to highlight the expertise of our university's faculty and staff. As usual, I'm joined by my co-host, Clayton Castle. And today, we're joined once again by Dr. Brian Hackett to sort through the Hackett Files, the latest collection of projects emerging from our Master of Public History program.
1: Now, if you didn't catch our St. Patrick's Day interview in the spring, Dr. Hackett leads NKU's Master's in Public History program, a degree track that concerns history education that takes place outside of the traditional classroom setting. Brian, welcome back to the Northside Podcast.
2: It is a pleasure to be here with you guys.
1: How does it feel to be the first repeat guest of the podcast?
2: Uh, a, a little <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah, it's just like, you know, this, if they never do this again, you'll know why.
1: <laughs> so let's start with the project that I helped a, lot, a little bit with, with the Newport Barracks Project. Uh, it's in the Newport Barracks historical site. It's down, what's the park name down there in Newport? It's Taylor Park. Taylor Park, uh, right along the banks of the Ohio River. Uh, can you give us a little bit about uh, that project, a little background on that project and how it came to fruition?
2: Okay, well, uh, a long time ago, when this area was being settled, um, the U.S. military put a fort, built a fort, and that fort was actually Fort Washington, which is uh, was on the the Cincinnati side of the river, and it was there from the late 1780s up to about 1803. Well, it closed down as as we became more developed and things, but they moved the they moved the fort across the river, and it became the Newport Barracks, and it was located where the Licking River and the Ohio River meet on the Newport side. And it became a training base, also a military fort, up until the late 1880s when there was a series of floods and they moved out and created what is now Fort Thomas. Um, It played a major role in the the, um, war with England, the War of 1812. It played a major role in the Civil War. It played a major role in the Mexican War. And, and actually the Spanish-American War. So there was a lot of things that were going on in that area, and my students were tasked to do an investigation of the history. And we were working with the city because the city, as you know, there's a lot of development going on down there, and the city has to, they want to upgrade the park. And the park has been sort of in out of the way place, so it really doesn't have, have a lot of visitation, but they want to change that. And so they approached us to help them with that. And we found some remarkable things. And our investigation is, is just really beginning. Um, and it's exciting. And it's something to get our hands dirty. We never knew how important this place was during the War of 1812. Um, fantastic stuff. Really fantastic stuff.
1: So I was with you guys uh, back in, I think it was May, when you guys did the ground penetrating radar. Yes. And when I was with you guys, you said you were looking, you didn't know what you were going to find, but you were looking for what are called anomalies. Without going into too much detail as to what you actually did find, what did you mean by anomalies?
2: What kind of things could pop up? Okay. Well, that's a very good question. Um, and we, the, the data was complete. We've, they did the ground penetrating ra- ra- gr- radar. They started in May and then started working out. They were going to be at it for about a month or so. And as it turns out, because of things that were going on in the city, including construction, they had to postpone for a while. So they actually only just completed the ground penetrating radar about two weeks ago. And they have not completed the analyzation because it has to be run through a program and the program will help them determine what's there and everything. They did say, however, they found a number of anomalies. And what those anomalies are, things that they want to explore, things that that could be something significant. Uh, I do know that some of those anomalies could be, they could be foundations, they could be graves, they could be a lot of things. So we don't know yet. And so the next phase is what they, after they are finished with the analysis, which should be in the next few weeks, they're going to do what's called proofing, which means they're going to go in and the sites that seem the most promising, they're going to do an archaeological dig, and we want to be there. Our students are going to be involved, uh, working with the state archaeologists on this, and then the collection, whatever is, was found, will actually become part of the collection at the Beringer Crawford Museum. So they will be available for exhibits and educational purposes throughout our region. Um, the other thing that we discovered while this was going on is how significant this place really was. Um, not only was it a staging area, but there's a number of generals who fought in the Civil War actually got their training in Newport. Um, we found that, so I guess we shouldn't have been too surprised, but one of the other alarming things that we found was that um, there were a number of soldier suicides. As you know, that's a major problem that we have today with soldiers coming back and, and not being able to fit in and because of post-traumatic stress. Well, that's nothing new. Um, you had it, it was really bad during the Civil War. It was really bad World War I and World War II, but obviously it was pretty bad during the, um, the, war of 1812 as well, um, because we found some pretty graphic stories. Um, I can think of two in particular where a, a soldier, um, left the barracks, went into town, went into a restaurant, ordered the finest meal he could afford. And then when he was done, he walked out the back door and killed himself. Another one just took a walk into the Ohio River and never came out. So, I mean, this is something that we deal with today, and it's so important that we talk about it, but also show people it's not an isolated thing. This is something that the military and American society has been dealing with for generations, and it's really important that we kind of talk about that. Um, Some of the other more light-hearted things. Um, this is this is one of my favorite stories and I and I still want to find a way to capitalize on this. But there was a group of troops that left the barracks during the war of 1812 and they marched all the way up to Canada and fought in the Battle of the Thames, which is a very important battle because that's where Tecumseh, the Native American uh, uh, leader, was was killed. So anyway, um, but one of the regiments that marched up there, was followed by a pig. A pig followed them all the way up and came all the way back. So uh, my students found that. It's pretty amazing. And so we created, one of my students is a, a pretty good graphic artist, and he drew a picture of a pig in battle armor. And they call it. he called it um, Sir Oink's and he was a battle pig. Um, so we thought, what if we contact the toy company and see if they want to <laughs> make a a uh, battle pig maybe instead of armor we might put him in the uniform from the war of 1812 and it could become a mascot for us
1: so tell us how you find those kind of stories those are really interesting stories you obviously you don't dig those stories up literally i guess but how ha- how do you find those kind of stories
2: well the the students did a lot of research and the places that they start finding things there's there's the obvious places You know, the census records, there are newspaper reports, those kind of things. But also we started looking at military records. And there's some very interesting things that we found. For example, that the soldiers got a ration of whiskey. So that that was their daily ration. They would get a ration of whiskey. Um, We know there's actually a a document that I was aware already existed, but it's actually in a museum in Ohio. And it was an order from... um, the Mad Anthony Wayne, this is actually before the War of 1812, Mad Anthony Wayne to William Henry Harrison, who was an adjutant general at the time, telling that to give the men enough whiskey to keep them working, but not enough to get them drunk. <laughs> so, I mean, whiskey is really important. And you can actually say that part of the whiskey industry and the bourbon industry in, in Kentucky is because what happened here. There's a lot of debates of where, you know, the whiskey and bourbon that was made in Kentucky, where did it go? Did it go through Louisville? Did it go through Maysville? Did it come through the, you know, northern Kentucky area? I think a very strong case could be made to come through northern Kentucky because the military was buying so much of it. So, I mean, you had a built-in audience. You have, what, uh, three to 500 soldiers here? And, of course, they're young men. They're away from home for the first time. They're unattached. So what are they interested in? You know, they're interested in alcohol, female companionship, and ways fun ways to spend money so you wonder why we became at least newport became sin city because we had the market you know what are think about it what do young unattached males in their late teens and early 20s interested in and of course there's going to be there's going to be a supplier
0: and this project has been a collaborative effort between nku and the city of newport as you mentioned a little bit earlier what has that relationship been like, and how has it allowed you to do some of the work that you've been doing?
2: Well, That's a really good question, and I will also mention we have other partners as well. We have partners, actually media partners. We also have the, um, the state of Kentucky's Landmarks Commission and also the Antiquities Commission, and they have been very helpful. They've been supplying the Grand Penitentiary Radar and the archaeologists that oversee these things. Um, what this does is gives our students greater exposure Plus, they're doing real stuff. It's real stuff that makes a difference. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, you go to a classroom, you learn, you know, the professor teaches, you read books. That's great. And that's very important. But it's—but it the other element is actual hands-on stuff. So, for example, we have students that were actually military veterans working on the research. And they could understand a little bit better from their insights what was going on in this base. Um, we found just so much that, and I should say, I didn't find it. It was my students found it. And working with the city and the city's expertise and the city's personnel and working with the state and their expertise and their personnel have enriched what we do. Not only that, it gives us an insight as if a student goes and leaves my public history program, goes to a museum someplace, and they have a project similar to this, they've experienced it. They know who to contact or they need what you know, is going on. They need to know things. For example, if somebody were to say to one of my students who'd never been through their class, okay, we want to bring in some ground penetrating radar. What does that mean? Well, how is it involved? You know, there are rules and regulations of why things are done a certain way. And that's all involved in the education process. And it's it's wonderful to have a student tell me when they go out to interview and they'll somebody will ask them, well, what is your experience on this? And a lot of students who go to different programs and other universities, well, well, I've read a lot about it. It's so much more to say, I've done it. You know, I've built an exhibit. I've done an oral history project. I have done these things. So what you're getting is experience. And that's, that's what these partnerships bring.
0: And you mentioned earlier that your next stage of the project is proofing. What, where does the project stand right now? And what are the steps that you're going to be taking after that?
2: Okay, well, the proofing, of course, is the actual digging. And having not seen the data, I'm not sure what that's going to entail. But basically, they're going to select hotspots, important places to look for things. And the things that people look for, believe it or not, are things like privies and basements and trenches. I mean, if you think about it, um, the best information we can get is things related to privies and outhouses. And if you, um, the reason why is that people do things there they don't know anybody else about. So that's where they throw their stuff. That's where they, you know, everyday things get thrown. Um, I'd love to challenge my students. Uh, You guys are both too young to remember, but McDonald's used to sell hamburgers, especially their Big Mac, in a styrofoam box. There were literally billions and billions and billions of those produced. I would give you 25 bucks if you could find one within a week. You know, you can go online now and maybe be able to find one. But those were, they were every day in common. The stuff that gets left in museums and things are things that, that weren't common, that people saved for a reason. So you dig in a privy, you're going to find out what people ate. You're going to figure out what, what their vices were. You're going to find out a lot of things about their daily life. It's just the same if I say to you guys, okay, I'm coming over to your, your house tomorrow. And I'm going to go through your house to see who, what kind of person you are. Tonight, you're going to go home. You're going to go straighten up. You're going to throw away, you know, all the things you don't want me to see. You know, you're going to do all that stuff. But if I said, okay, guys, while you're sitting here, I've got a team of people going through your house. Where am I going to learn more about you? You know, stuff that's censored or stuff that's not censored. So that's why privies are so exciting because they tell us things and you can't believe the stuff that ends up in previous. And it's, and it's a lot of fun. Of course, all the waste is gone and everything. So it's just dirt. But, so that's one of the things that those kind of the ground, the digging will look for. Also there are trash pits. I mean, this is the military. You got trash pits all the time and um, we've already found stuff. You know, there's a, there was a tree that blew over and just in the roots of the tree, there was so much stuff. That was just exposed because literally for nearly 100 years, that was a military base. But what do we know about it? Very little. Let's switch
1: switch gears now to the Southgate Street School in Newport. Uh, Before we talk about the Juneteenth exhibit that your students were a part of, let's talk about Southgate Street School in general. This is a a pretty small building, actually, behind House in Newport. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what that school is or what that school was and
2: the role it played in Northern Kentucky history? Absolutely. That is one of our, uh, our region's really unsung um, treasures. Because if you think about it, slavery really didn't end in Kentucky till 1870 because we fought for the North, although people think that we fought for the South. We fought for the North. We were a pro-Union state. And because slavery although it existed in Kentucky was never so much part of the economy whereas in the south it was the economy and in, in Kentucky there was a mixture of you know slavery and and other sources of income for people so we fought for the union we had a lot of soldiers that fought for the union all right so when when Lincoln freed the slaves for the, during the Emancipation Proclamation, it only freed slaves in the states of rebellion. So Congress had to come in and just end slavery. Okay, so slavery ends about 1870 in, in Kentucky. Well, all those enslaved people, as well as, as non-enslaved free people, they had been denied education. So they had to create a place where their kids could get an education. And in Newport, that place happened to be what's called now the South Southgate Street School. It actually started in a house, I believe, in the 1870s. Um, eventually, they tore it down and they built the current building, which is about 1893. Okay, so it's been a school. Um, it, acted as, it acted as a school. It was a segregated school. I think it had four classrooms. Um, it so you know cl- courses or courses uh, grades were combined. Um, the way it was described, because it, it operated up to the mid 50s, described as a place where black students could go and actually feel equal, that they weren't looked down upon or whatever. And it was a, so it becomes sort of a community place of celebration. Is that the way to say it? It's a place, it was a beacon of hope, yes. really. And it's interesting because when, when segregation ended, and they, the school board closed that school and sent the students to other schools. They were not treated as well. We have stories told by having students having their mouths taped shut and being told to sit in the back of the room, or being told, "I don't know why you're here. Your only job that you'll ever get is washing dishes and cleaning houses." Where in Southgate School they heard something different. Okay, so um, actually the school board sold it, and it, and it actually was sold to a mobster whose name was Screw Andrews. <laughs> and Screw Andrews ran, you know, quite a bit of the mob in northern Kentucky. He eventually sold it to a group of African-American Masons, and they ran it as a Masonic temple. And um, they did great. They, were the, they really saved it, and they operated it and stuff. And now, uh, back in 2017, they got a, an agreement with the city So the city could operate part of it as a museum and maintain it and, you know, pay the bills and everything else. So it could be used as a a community center and museum. And my students got involved at that time. We did exhibits. We've done collections work for them. Um, But what's really exciting about it is that the stories that can be told. Um, There's always been a sizable African-American community in this area. And basically they have been ignored. And if you think about history, history is history. It doesn't belong to one race it doesn't belong to one gender anything that happens is history okay and some of these stories are really inspiring um, and and exciting so um, we've like i said we've done a number of exhibits there uh, we did one on the history of the school we did one on the newports um, uh, bicentennial we also did one on architecture historic architecture in the area well this last one is for the june we did one for the juneteenth exhibit for the Juneteenth celebration and basically it was a panel exhibit so it can be moved. It can go to different schools and everything. And so it was designed and created and manufactured by my students. And I had a team of students of about five or six students who worked on it and they did amazing because Juneteenth has, uh, has kind of a mixed connotation for a lot of people. I mean, it's a great, you know, it celebrates freedom. It's basically you get the name from Juneteenth because in Texas, when the war was over and they were able to tell everybody that they were free, word did not travel real fast. Mm-hmm. So they rather than hear it on June 15th, they they might have heard it on the 17th. So they celebrate Juneteenth because of all the times the news finally got to people. And um, that's pretty cool. It means a lot. I mean, if it just think about if it was you where you're... you're your family and your lifestyle, you've been enslaved and suddenly you're free. It's a great American story. It doesn't belong to one race. It belongs to all of us. If you believe America is the land of the free and the home of the brave and all those things, then this should be celebrated nationwide. So my students put together this exhibit and it was great. I mean, well received. It was for the opening. They had a big celebration and everything. Um, And the most interesting thing is that a number of people approached my students and, and thanked them for a great job. And one of my students said that he, he was approached by his an elderly relative of his, uh, we say. And that person said, I'm very proud of what you did, but I'm not proud of what, you, what the subject is because we, we shouldn't talk about this stuff. And he said it was really ironic to think that someone would be so offended by, by a great American event Um, And that's interesting because my students really, um, I think, really put their hearts and souls into this. And that's really the kind of stuff that my students do. And that's what we try to encourage our students to be involved because I learned a long time ago that I could tell them what to do and I can give them, show them techniques But they have to have ownership, and that's the most important thing. And they had ownership of this exhibit. Plus, it did such great—I think it told a great message. And now that it's such a traveling exhibit, it can go into schools, it can go into businesses and all sorts of stuff, that it's got a long legacy.
0: final project to talk about today is one that involves former WKRC anchor and media personality Nick Clooney. Uh, from what I understand, the Clooney family bought a former Methodist church in order to restore it, and what they learned about the building ended up leading to the involvement of some student researchers here.
2: This is a, this is a great project of what's possible. Um, back in December, I get a phone call from a woman by the name of Terry Keith. Terry Keith, is she refers to herself as Nick Clooney's producer when Nick Clooney was on, on television. Anyway, so they said, here's the issue. The Clooney's own a building in Augusta, Ohio. Excuse me, Augusta, Kentucky. Oh, I'm never going to live that down. Augusta, Kentucky. And it's a former Methodist church. And it actually was a church that was, um, it had an African American congregation, which this is really interesting because there was a, a definitely a, an African American congregation. Um, Methodist Church, I mean, that existed throughout America. And um, during the Civil War, Methodist Church, like other churches, split. And there was a Methodist Church South and a Methodist Church North. South, of course, promoted slavery. North, of course, did not. All right. But there was an African-American where it, because there was such segregation. So anyway, so they called us up and they said, look, we need help. You know, what, what can you do for us? So we met with them. We talked it over, and it became obvious that they had great ideas, but they needed a little direction. So we contacted some people here on campus from the M.A.P. program, uh, Masters in Public Administration, M.P.A. program, and they actually sent somebody down to help with a retreat to help get them focused on stuff. So there were my students participated their their committee, which is made up of Clooney family members and. Uh, local contacts, but also um, former colleagues of Nick and Nina Clooney, um, the man and wife that owned the property. They had bought the property in the 80s in order to keep it from being torn down. It had its original stained glass window, which windows, which it still has. It was, cons- it was perceived as a black church, which it had a black congregation, but it was registered as a regular United Methodist Church which is really great because what it means is, is that anybody could attend that white, black, whatever. And the idea was is that all men are created equal. So there wasn't a segregated place, which is only something that we really discovered in the past maybe few months. And, it, and it's hard to underestimate or hard to over, excuse me, it's hard not to un- quite understand what that means. I mean, but it's huge. It really, really is big. And the project centers around actually a woman by the name of um, Sarah Thomas. Sarah Thomas was a woman who had been born a slave, um, somehow was freed, and then started a business. She was in the leather business, leather working business. Um, There is some speculation that she actually had a tannery as well. Anyway, she was a very successful businesswoman, and this is a time of slavery in Kentucky. To tell you how what a great businesswoman she was. She was loaning money as a black businesswoman to white businesses. It's unbelievable. Okay. So anyway, she was able to put together money and then she set aside her money when her estate was was settled to build a church that would be open to all races and all genders and everything. I mean, it was really progressive. And of course, in Augusta, You had the Augusta College, which started with an abolitionist college that was closed down in 1847 um, because they were abolitionists and the state ordered them shut down because they were anti-slavery. But there's a whole bunch of underground railroad history. There's abolitionist history. There's entrepreneurial history, a lot of stuff. And that's my students are working with. The idea is they're going to take this building. The idea now is to turn it into some performance venue as well as a, a museum. And maybe do outreach programs and everything else. So NKU is involved on several different levels and probably more levels as time goes on. So if you're going to turn that into a theater, what needs to go into it? What are the electrical needs? What are the lighting needs? What are the sound needs? Those kind of things. Well, the theater department can answer that question. You know, it comes to research. My students got it in spades. They're going to do an exhibit. They're going to do that as well you know, but there's other things like marketing and businesses and management and all the other stuff that other departments could be involved in. And that's sort of like the way we'd like to think of things as community has issues. We can partner with them for the benefit of our students, but also for the benefit of our communities and make us really relevant to what our communities need.
1: Well, Brian, this has been a blast. <clears throat> as I, usual.
2: I love talking
1: to you. I love, uh, going to going to these projects with you because I've, I've watched your students work firsthand I've watched the uh, the Juneteenth project and then the I love the ground penetrating radar that was so cool um, and what your students are doing is really making NKU proud and uh, I just applaud you and the masters of public History program for all the work that you have been doing.
2: thank you um, I, I appreciate that and I, I feel good about you telling me that but I have to tell you NKU is a magic place is that there are a number of people here that are entrepreneurial and and really see the students as the reason for their work. I mean you always get the people who think oh I'm only here for my research and stuff interest but here there are a number of people in various departments and I've had the pleasure of working with them where stu- they're student focused and they're community focused and it's it's wonderful because we are uh, somebody described it as we play point and shoot basketball because we can move very fast. I mean, it, you talk at places like UC and Xavier and stuff, it's like trying to move the Titanic. When they want to go in a new direction or they want to try some new stuff, it takes them years to get it off the ground. Here, because we have this entrepreneurial spirit and we have some great leaders and we have with, with professors and students and staff with great vision, it's a lot easier to do stuff here than it is in other places.
1: Well, this has been awesome. I can't wait to have you on for a third time. <laughs> Let's do it again in six, eight months or so, When, uh, especially when there's an update on this Barracks project, because I think that's one of the coolest things that NKU's probably done in a really long time. So, uh, Dr. Hackett, thank you for ha- coming on. For me. This has been Dr. Brian Hackett, Program Director of the Masters of Public History Program here at Northern Kentucky University. Uh, this has been another episode of the NorseUp Podcast. As always, be sure to like and subscribe on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If we're not on there, let us know and we'll get on there. And be sure to follow the podcast on all the main NKU social medias at NKUEDU on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it now, and Northern Kentucky University on Facebook. Again, this has been another episode of the Norse Up podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And as always, north Up!